This week on The Word of the Lord Endures Forever, we dig still further into St. Luke's Gospel with Boy with an Unclean Spirit. Who is the greatest? Samaritans reject Jesus, the cost of following Christ, and sending of the 72. Join me, Pastor Will Whedon, for The Word of the Lord Endures Forever, your daily 15-minute verse-by-verse Bible study on demand. Listen at thewordendures.org or your favorite podcast provider. One of the things that's really remarkable is that by 107, you have St. Ignatius of Antioch saying that you don't have a church without all three orders, bishop, priest, or in case it's presbyter, and deacon. And so one of the reasons that's really striking is that uh, a lot of Protestants don't think that there were bishops in the early church that early. And a lot of Protestants think that every church kind of did whatever it wanted in terms of local governance. And neither of those things are true, that there were bishops uh, from as far back as we can find, and that the early Christians didn't view the church governance or the church structure as something that was left up to the people or the local community to decide, but it was rather the kind of thing that they received from the apostles and and pass on. Uh, That is, I think, very different from a lot of people's conception of what early Christianity was like. That's Joel Heschmeyer of Catholic Answers. Is this an example of cherry-picking the church fathers, going to Ignatius and finding that single quote, albeit out of context, and saying that was the case for all of Christianity? And now, laying aside for a moment, there was a pretty serious mischaracterization of what many Protestant or non-Catholic Christians believe about the office of the ministry in the early church. A lot of us believe it's a divine institution handed down not only from the apostles, but through the apostles, from Christ himself. Welcome back to Issues Etc. Our series, Responding to Roman Catholic Proof Text, continues today, Proof Texting Early Church Fathers. Dr. Stephen Parks is our guest, Associate Professor of Theology and Philosophy at Concordia University, Irvine, California. Stephen, welcome back. Thank you, Todd. It's an honor to be back with you. What do we mean by either like cherry-picking or proof-texting church fathers? I think people can mean different things by the phrase, but generally speaking, when we talk about it in that way, what we mean is taking certain things and then ignoring other things. So if we're going to cherry pick from the fathers, we take the things that we like, we take the things that at least sound like they agree with what it is that we think or we believe, we ignore the context, we ignore the other things that they say, and we put it forward as if it's just sort of unequivocal or unambiguous evidence for the things that we ourselves believe to be true. So how would you respond to someone who says, look, the church fathers are a mixed bag, everybody cherry picks them? There's a certain extent, I think, to which that is true, because if you want to talk about what a father believes, you have to quote them. You have to cite them. And you can't, for example, you know, in the case of Ignatius, sit through and read all seven of his letters every time you want to cite him one time to prove one thing. So there's a sense in which maybe all people are open to that. But the way that we want to handle the fathers carefully is to make sure that we are not simply quoting the words that they say, 
but that we understand those words within a given context and that we can amply demonstrate that the words that we think mean certain things are the actual things that the fathers mean by the use of that words. In this case, for example, bishop, or in other cases, it could be any other number of terms, Eucharist or whatever it happens to be. So I think it's just like with cherry picking scripture, right, or isolating or proof texting the Bible, you always want to make sure you cite it within its particular context. So too, that's kind of the best defense against cherry picking the father, citing them in their context and taking into account the other things that they say elsewhere in their writings. Let's just talk about how this fits within kind of the typical Roman Catholic view of church authority. We heard there in that bite from Joel Heschmeyer, at least an implication that the threefold office of the ministry, as I would put it, was actually handed down from the apostles and then passed on through these church fathers. Yeah, it's a very popular idea amongst Catholic apologists. In fact, Trent Horn, who we've kind of analyzed before, has uh, even put out a YouTube video called The Church Father That Protestants Fear Most, and that is uh, Ignatius. So when we look at what the scriptures teach us about the office of the ministry, what we learn is this. Jesus instituted one office, and the intention of instituting that office was that this would be the person within a local congregation who preaches and who teaches and who administers the sacraments according to Christ's word and in accordance with Christ's institution. And in the early church at the time of Ignatius and others, the terms that were used to speak of that office were many. The two most popular terms that referred to that same office was overseer, sometimes translated as bishop from the Greek episkopos, and then also the term elder, translated from the Greek presbyteros. So both of those terms referred to the same office, the office that we refer to today as pastor, which is why, for example, if you look at Paul talking about the offices in the church in 1 Timothy chapter 3, he only talks about bishops and deacons. He never mentions presbyters. Now, why is that? Well, it's because for Paul, bishops and presbyters were the same thing. So whether he called them bishops or whether he called them presbyters, when he addresses the qualifications for the office in 1 Timothy 3, he's speaking to the self-same office. Now, you can actually see that come out in his other writings. So, for example, when he writes to Titus in uh, Titus chapter 1, verses 5 through 7, Paul says this, this is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained in order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and the children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery and insubordination. For an overseer or a bishop, as God's steward, must be above reproach. So you see, he moves seamlessly from talking about how an elder has to be above reproach to emphasizing that a bishop has to be above reproach. And that's because they were the same office. And you see this come out especially also in Acts chapter 20, and this will be the last text that I cite here. But in Acts chapter 20, you may remember that Paul is in Ephesus, and he gathers together the leaders of the local congregations there, and he does it in order to warn them. And this is what Acts chapter 20 tells us, starting in verse 17. It says, Now from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called the elders, the presbyteros, of the church to come to him. 
And when they came to them, he said to them, and he gives them this long speech about how he's going to warn them about how after his departure, savage wolves are going to come in, not sparing the flock, and will draw away disciples after themselves. And he wraps it up in verse 28, where he says this to these elders, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you bishops, episcopus, to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. So again, the elders that he gathers together, he refers to as bishops because they're the same office, that one office instituted by Jesus to preach and to teach and to administer the sacraments. How should we regard, rightly regard, the church fathers? The best way to regard the fathers is as witnesses to the truth, not judges of the truth. In other words, the church fathers tell you the truth as they understood it, but they were fallible human beings, and they were in particular times and in particular places, which often dictated things that had been going on in those particular times and places, which sort of formed and shaped the way in which they thought about certain things. So you read the fathers in their overall context, right, individual fathers, and then you read them also over and against contemporaries who were in the same or similar context, and you take them as a whole. But most importantly, you compare and contrast them always to the Holy Scriptures, because very often the fathers act as tremendous blessings in terms of bearing a, a witness, a corroboration, testifying to the same truth that Scripture itself proclaims. And when that happens, we gratefully and we reverently receive the witness of the fathers. But sometimes the fathers speak in ways that are contrary to Scripture, sometimes perhaps by accident, sometimes perhaps out of weakness. And in those cases, we reverently bear with them. We remember that they are, in fact, our fathers, but we don't depart from Scripture for the sake of the fathers. So whenever the fathers bear witness to the truth of Scripture, we gladly receive their testimony and use it very reverently. But when they depart from Scripture, we must depart from the Father. How do we regard them in terms of their authority? So in terms of their authority, the idea is that they're, generally speaking, churchmen. So they're pastors or they're bishops. And all pastors and all bishops are fallible, which means that they're able to make mistakes. They're able to make errors. Having said that, though, they were fighting tooth and nail against a lot of the same things that we have to fight tooth and nail against today. So when they talk about things like resisting the influence of culture, or when they fight against certain heresies that were popular at that time, which still remain somewhat popular today, Arianism is what they fought against, for example, in the fourth century. Well, we still have Jehovah's Witnesses, and we still have the Way International, and we still have Iglesia and Cristo and all kinds of other church bodies out there who are Arian in nature. And so we can use their writings, and we can use their exegetical labors, and we can receive the work that they've done when they point us back to the Scriptures. But we always need to test them by the Scriptures because we want to make sure that they're bearing witness to the truth and not leading us to something that is untrue or pushing us in a direction that would lead us away from Christ instead of to him. So we don't establish anything solely on the basis of the fathers, even if all the fathers are unanimous in this thing. We don't establish anything on the, solely on the basis of the fathers. That's exactly right, because as important as the fathers are and as wonderful a witness as they bear to the truth, they themselves are not the truth. 
Truth is established by the Word of God and by that alone. And so if we had every father that were lined up against one sentence of Scripture, we must side with that one sentence of Scripture. Now, thankfully, that doesn't happen in practice. But if it did, the idea is it's better to follow God and obey God rather than men. So we follow that principle that Peter lays out for us in Acts chapter 5. So coming back to Joel Heschmeyer's argument regarding the threefold office, he claims established essentially from the time of the apostles, but obviously very early. How is he misusing, I believe the father was Ignatius, and again, paraphrasing, says that Ignatius says you don't have a church if you don't have these three offices. Yeah, so what I think he is doing there is he's committing a logical error or a logical fallacy. Sometimes it's referred to as the word concept fallacy, which is the idea that because somebody uses the same word that you use, they must likewise intend the same meaning that you intend. So Joel is a Roman Catholic. Joe believes that the bishop is the head over a diocese, over an entire region, and that that bishop was ordained by another bishop who was ordained by another bishop, tracing all the way back to the time of the apostles, etc. This isn't the idea that Ignatius has in mind at all. When Ignatius talks about a bishop, he's using it very similar to the way in which the Apostle Paul uses the term, which is to use it as the incumbent of the office of the ministry, or as we might say, he's talking about the pastor. And we can kind of determine that from his writings fairly easily when you take a look at what he talks about the bishop doing or the things that it's incumbent upon the congregation to do with the bishop. So, for example, he talks about constantly, this is a a drumbeat throughout the entirety of his letters, but he says, do nothing without the bishop. The idea there is, is that if the bishop is the head over a diocese and isn't actually in your congregation on Sunday morning, then there's a lot that you're doing without the bishop. But that's not what Ignatius has in mind. Ignatius has in mind, essentially, the incumbent of the office of the ministry, the pastor. In other words, don't gather together randomly without the bishop, without the pastor. Don't celebrate the Lord's Supper or the Eucharist without the pastor, right? So do nothing without the bishop. You can see that, for example, in his epistle to the Tralians, chapter 2. He talks about what the bishop does. The bishop, for example, baptizes, and the bishop administers the Eucharist. You see that in his epistle to the Smyrnians, chapter 8. You see constantly that you are to be in constant agreement with the bishop in terms of prayer, indicating that the bishop seems to be the one who leads the public prayer in the church and so on. So he's not talking about somebody who administers a diocese. He's talking about the person who is actively involved in the life of the church, leading worship, preaching, teaching, and administering the sacraments, which is to say he's talking about the pastor. That's how the term was used then. And we see that not only in Ignatius of Antioch, but we see it in the other fathers as well, the other early fathers. So it's interesting, as you're describing the practice there at the time of Ignatius, it sounds an awful lot like maybe the practice of the Roman Catholic Church or any other Christian church nowadays, because if he wants to argue that Ignatius is saying you can't say baptized without the bishop, well, there are Roman Catholic baptisms taking place all the time without the presence of a bishop. So even their own practice does not support what Ignatius says there, or he supposes Ignatius says there. Yeah, that's exactly it, right? So every Sunday, if you were to go to a Catholic Mass, you would find that they're praying without the bishop present. You would find that they're baptizing without the bishop present. You're finding that they're administering the Eucharist without the bishop present. And these are all things that Ignatius says don't do. 
So the only way to really and truly understand what Ignatius is getting at here is to read it in its context. And when we do that, again, we see that what he's talking about is the pastor or the one who is publicly preaching, teaching, and administering the sacraments. Dr. Stephen Parks is our guest. It's our series responding to Roman Catholic proof text today, proof texting early church fathers. On the other side, does this mean all of this together mean that we reject the idea of bishops? Several Issues Etc. regular guests are candidates for leadership positions in the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Every LCMS congregation has received nomination forms for the president and vice presidents of synod. Please encourage your pastor and congregational leaders to fill out and return these nomination forms before February 28th of 2023. Learn more at issuesetc.org slash 2023 nominations. Issuesetc.org slash 2023 nominations. Elective abortion is not and never has been medical care. So wrote Dr. Donna Harrison, a wife, mother of five, and grandmother of ten, and also a pro-life advocate. And she wrote those words in the January issue of The Lutheran Witness, in which we take up the issue of the pro-life movement after the overturning of Roe versus Wade. To pick up your copy, visit cph.org witness or visit our website witness.lcms.org to learn more. The Lutheran Witness, helping you interpret the world from a Lutheran perspective. Real Reformation Radio. You're listening to Issues Etc. Our Christian faith is under constant attack, and we must be proactive in keeping our children in the church. At Faith Lutheran School in Plano, Texas, we believe that an education rooted in God's Word is one that stands against the very gates of hell. Nothing in this world is more important. Offering a rigorous classical Lutheran education, we provide in-person and live online remote learning opportunities for preschool through grade 12. To learn more, visit flsplano.org, flsplano.org. Oh, Lord, open my lips. Listen to chapel services live weekday mornings from Concordia Theological Seminary in Fort Wayne, Indiana. Morning Chapel from Kramer Chapel. Live weekday mornings at 9 Central, 10 Eastern, 8 Mountain, and 7 Pacific at issuesetc.org. Insight from the Issues Etc. Book of the Month for January, the latest volume of the John Commentary by Dr. William Weinrich from Concordia Publishing House. Yet the Son alone and by himself is not the one God whom Jesus proclaims, nor is he the one God of the Gospel of John. Jesus is the Son, and so all that he is and all that he works is as the Son of the Father. In the Gospel of John, Christology serves the revelation of the Father and leads to a knowledge of the Father and to worship of the Father. Find out more about the latest volume of the John Commentary from the Concordia Commentary series. It covers chapters 7, verse 2 through 1250 at our website, issuesetc.org, or call Concordia Publishing House, 1-800-325-3040. Ask for the Issues Etc. Book of the Month for January, 1-800-325-3040. Dr. Stephen Parks is our guest. We're responding to Roman Catholic proof text, proof texting early church fathers. 
All that you've said here, Dr. Parks, does that mean that we reject the idea of bishops? No, not necessarily. You mean, of course, in the way that the Roman Catholic Church understands the term bishop there. I don't think that that's necessarily the case at all. In fact, if you read the Lutheran Confessions, particularly the treatise on the power and primacy of the Pope, you find that uh, Melanchthon there essentially argues that the office of bishop as we have it today is more or less a historical development. And what he argues is that what you have eventually is over time you have these churches that start out that are ruled by or that are presided over by a number of elders or bishops, right? A number of pastors, in other words. And unfortunately, that didn't do such wonders for unity, because just like when you have churches that have multiple pastors in our day and age, you might have some that like Pastor Fred, some that like Pastor Joe, some that like Pastor George better. And that can cause factions and divisions. So over time, these congregations that were originally headed by a number of elders or bishops elected from among themselves one that would be the primary one who preaches and teaches and administers the sacraments. And that's what we see kind of taking place in the days of Ignatius. And that did work wonders for unity as people kind of rallied behind the one person in their individual congregation. And that tended to work so well in local congregations that once those Christianity spreads and those local congregations find sort of more need to cooperate with one another in terms of mission work and, and other kinds of things. What they ultimately do is they decide then to elect from among those single bishops in the congregations now one who would oversee an entire region. And over time, you have not only a development in the office, but you have a development in the language concerning that office so that the one who oversees the region now is considered to be the bishop and only he is called the bishop. And the others uh, that preside in the congregation now are referred to as presbyters or eventually as priests. So there's nothing wrong with that kind of a development. In fact, you can see how it might tend toward unity. The problem is in suggesting that it is of a divine institution and that you have to have things that way if that's how you really want a church. And that's not, in fact, what the fathers teach. Let me read to you, for example, just a real brief snippet from Jerome in his commentary on the epistle of Titus. Here's what he says. He says, therefore, as we have shown, among the ancients, presbyters were the same as bishops, but by degrees that the plants of dissension may be rooted up, all responsibility was transferred to one person. Therefore, as the presbyters know that it is by custom of the church that they're to be subject to him who is placed over them, so let the bishops know that they are above presbyters rather by custom than by divine appointment and ought to rule the church in common, following the example of Moses, who, when he alone had power to preside over the people of Israel, chose 70, with the assistance of whom he might judge the people. We see, therefore, what kind of presbyter or bishop should be ordained. So Jerome here is well aware of the fact that this is a historical development and not a divine appointment. Very few church fathers knew the scriptures as well as Jerome did. He's one of the greatest scriptural theologians in the ancient church, especially when it comes to the exegetical knowledge of the original languages and so forth. And here he's teaching us quite clearly that he recognizes, and I'm sure he wasn't alone, that this is a historical development, not by divine appointment. We have to emphasize at this point that we do have a divinely instituted office, not merely from the apostles, certainly passed down by the apostles, but from Christ himself. Talk about that. Yes. So there is an office which Jesus institutes in order to carry out the work of the ministry. In other words, 
he doesn't just vaguely tell the church to carry out his message, but he appoints an office for preaching. And to that office, he ties also public teaching. And to that office also, he ties the public administration of the sacraments. So before ascending into heaven, he tasks the apostles who are gathered together with him and the other close disciples, and he tells them, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always, even until the end of the age. So in these places, Jesus is commanding those incumbents of the office to carry out the work of the ministry. And in fact, that's what the church has done from ancient times. Now, does the church have the ability or the authority to institute or to come up with or to create what we might call auxiliary offices in order to assist that divinely appointed office? And the answer that Scripture gives us to that is yes. So we see, for example, that the apostles create the office of deacon in order to help them meet the social needs within the congregation. And the church has done that historically as well. So in the LCMS, for example, we have offices like the DCE, the Director of Christian Education, the DCO, the Director of Christian Outreach. In our local congregations, we often have elders and, and trustees and so forth. And these are all offices that are created to come alongside the pastor in order to help to administer the physical needs of the congregation so that the pastor can be focused on the ministry of the Word of God and prayer, which is precisely what Peter says. It's not right that we neglect the ministry of the Word of God and prayer in order to wait tables. So we have the social needs of the ministries that are met by deacons and others, which the church appoints, and then we have the spiritual needs of the congregation, which are met directly by the pastor, which our Lord Jesus Christ himself has instituted to carry out those functions. And while we're at liberty to divvy up responsibilities according to church custom, we are not at liberty to modify that central office. That's right. So it would be a bit like if you were home one day and, you know, Vladimir Putin called you up and he said, hey, Todd, I'm, uh, I'm changing the office of president. You'd laugh at him because, well, number one, you'd be surprised that Vladimir Putin was calling you. But number two, he doesn't have any authority to be able to modify or change what he himself did not institute. The office of president was created and instituted by our founding documents. And so he doesn't have the authority to change that. And in a, in a similar way, when it comes to things that God has instituted, Nobody has the authority to change what God has instituted. So we cannot change the functions of the office. We cannot change the office itself because we didn't create it. We don't have the authority to change it. It's like marriage in that way. Nobody has the authority to change marriage because it's not a human institution. It's a divine institution. So too with the office of the ministry. We reverently receive it and we use it in accordance with Christ's command so that when a pastor preaches God's word, we're bound to believe it and to receive it. And when a pastor gives us the sacraments, then we're bound to receive them and gratefully rejoice in them because we know that we're receiving not from the pastor alone, but from Christ who promises to work through that office of the ministry, which he himself appointed toward that end. The Lutheran confessions chime in here, and they do directly address ecclesiastical authority and the power of bishops, but they're willing to concede temporal authority to bishops, but not this kind of plenary spiritual authority. 
Yeah, that's absolutely right. So Lutherans are often presented, especially by Catholic apologists, as being these these rebels who just wanted to throw off the shackles of benign Catholic authority so that they could just rend the church asunder and, and teach whatever they want. And that, in fact, of course, wasn't the case. We were seeking to be faithful to the Holy Scriptures, first and foremost. Secondly, we were willing to continue to remain under the office of bishop. And in fact, we were willing to remain under the Bishop of Rome with the caveat that he allow the gospel to be preached and taught. But unfortunately, at places like the Council of Trent and elsewhere, we're told if anyone believes in justification by faith alone, let him be anathema. So he wasn't going to allow the gospel to be freely preached and freely taught. And so just like Paul warns about the bishops who would come in like savage wolves and would draw away disciples after themselves, teaching ungodly things, and that they weren't to be listened to. So too in the case with bishops, even bishops of Rome, when they teach things that are ungodly or when they teach things that are contradictory with God's word, we don't depart from the word for their sake, but instead for the sake of the word, we depart from those bishops. Dr. Stephen Parks is Associate Professor of Theology and Philosophy at Concordia University, Irvine, California. Dr. Parks, thank you. It's always a pleasure. Thank you for having me on again, Todd. Friday on Issues Etc., we'll look forward to Sunday morning, according to the one-year lectionary, talking with Pastor Peter Bender about Jesus cleansing a leper and the faith of a centurion in Matthew chapter 8. And we'll get a review of the movie Banshees of Insurin with Pastor Ted Geese. How do we know where the church is? It's not by the existence of the bishop's office, but by where Christ marks his presence in the preaching of his word and the administration of his sacraments. And guess what? He's instituted an office to do those very things, the pastoral office. I'm Todd Wilkin. I'll talk with you tomorrow. Thanks for listening to Issues Etc. Listen weekday afternoons to Pastor Todd Wilkin and guests on Issues Etc., Issues Etc. is a listener-supported program. Your financial support is vital for the continuation and expansion of this worldwide outreach. Our mailing address, Issues Etc., P.O. Box 83, Collinsville, Illinois, 62234. Box 83, Collinsville, Illinois, 62234. You can also donate at our website, issuesetc.org. Issues Etc. is a production of LPR, Lutheran Public Radio. You're invited to a special life service Sunday afternoon at 3 on January 22nd at St. Paul Lutheran Church in Columbia, Illinois. Pastor Michael Salamink, Executive Director of Lutherans for Life, will be the guest preacher. What does Jesus have to do with life issues? Find out at a life service Sunday afternoon at 3, January 22nd at St. Paul Lutheran Church in Columbia, Illinois. Learn more at sidadvocatesforlife.com.